As you saw in the front of your bulletin, the series this summer is preaching through the, some of the Psalms. Obviously, I don't have time to preach through every Psalm, and the Psalm appointed for today in the lectionary is Psalm 100, a Psalm that is probably familiar to many of you, um, especially if you grew up in the church. It's a Psalm that invites us um, to worship, a Psalm that calls us to worship, a Psalm that speaks about God and who God is. But it also has another little phrase in there that is what bubbled up for me and it's what I want to focus on this morning out of that psalm. We surely would not have time uh, to try to unpack this whole psalm today, Um, but I think we can at least take some time to look at that one phrase. It's actually two words that are in the midst of that psalm, in the midst of that text, in which the psalmist talks about God and who God is, but then he begins to speak about himself and the company of the people, and he says that we are his people. We are his people. What does it mean to be a people? What might that writer have had in mind when he said we are his people? Now, when we find the word people used Throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, we find it in reference, of course, to different groups, but primarily to the people of Israel. What is interesting, of course, is when the Hebrew Scriptures were translated into the Greek language in what we call the Septuagint, the translators chose to almost always, there are a few exceptions, use one primary term when it talked about the people of God and then a different term for the nations or the people around them. When we find this term applied to the children of Israel, that they're the people of God, we have to understanding that their union as a people is not just about their shared culture. It's not about their language or their norms or their rules, traditions, or customs. It goes beyond that. The notion of union with as the people of God, is rooted in the notion that they are that. That above all else and whatever else they may have been, the people of Israel were the people of God. They were His people. As the German scholar Strothman asserts, the relation of possession is by the free act of Yahweh. He chose Israel. It was not caused by any outward or inward advantages enjoyed by Israel. Or as one British journalist is attributed to having said, how odd of God to choose the Jews. And as someone retorted, not odd of God, the goyim are annoying. (laughs) The concept of the people of God, as we found in Exodus chapter 19, where God is addressing Moses about the people and about them becoming a nation and about them being a nation and a kingdom of priests before him. He's speaking to them and he says to them that all the nations of the earth belong to him. The whole earth belongs to him. The whole earth is his. But out of all the peoples, he has chosen this people as his treasured possession, as his prized possession, this people of Israel concept of people of the people of God is picked up by St. Peter in his writings, especially in his first epistle, 
when you read these words, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And you and I must come to understand and remind ourselves again and again that the grace of God comes to you not because of any outward or inward advantage on your part, as Strothman says, but it comes not because he needs you, it comes because he wants you. Now, as Gentiles... Most of you in here, there's one Jew in here that I know of. Where are you? Raise your hand. I saw him this morning. I know he's here. Yeah, there he is. Okay. All the rest of us are the goyim. All the rest of us are the foreigners. All the rest of us were the outsiders. All the rest of us were strangers and aliens to the covenants. We were not a people. But now through faith in God and His gracious gracious action in Jesus Christ, you have the blessing of being God's people. You are now a people. So what are the implications of this for us? What does it mean for us to be the people of God? How does this concept intersect with our lives in the contemporary context in which we live? And there's one thing related to this that I want us to focus on. And think about it from different aspects. And that is that the people of God are called. Just as Abram was called and through faith became Abraham, just as his descendants heard that call, so we too are called by the grace of God to faith in Jesus. This is Paul's message over and over again in his epistles. He oftentimes opens them up, or at least within the first few verses, references that you and I who have responded to the grace of God in Jesus, that we have been called to this grace. We have been called to this faith. We have been called to believe in him. Even Peter picks this up in his writings as well. So we have to recognize that we are called to be God's people. And then we have to recognize also then that this calling is both out of and into. The children of Israel, they were first called out of Egypt, then they were called into the promised land. They were called out of and they were called into. And Simon Peter, if you listen to that text that I read from him a while ago, he also picks up on this, and he says that you and I were called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So we're called out of and into, out of and into. But when the church only hears the calling out of, she ends up spending her energy only focusing on ways to keep herself pure as if that depended upon her and in her weakness and at times through honest desire she seeks to insulate herself and her leaders often seek to engage in controlling behaviors of the flock by rules and regulations and by legalism and prescription because they only see themselves as called out and they fail to see themselves called into the freedom and liberty that is theirs in Jesus Christ. They end up with all kinds of notions and ideas. And you can see it from person to person sometimes or group to group. I remember a couple that I knew years ago, a family, 
they had young children at the time, and sometimes they would let them read literature that I thought was a little suspect, but then when Easter came, they wouldn't let their kids die Easter eggs because of something they'd read that happened a thousand years ago. <laughs> well, that happened a thousand years ago. That had nothing to do with today. Right? People get these ideas and these notions, you know, you don't drink and dance or smoke and chew, and you don't run with girls who do. When we only focus on being called out of, that's where we land. But you weren't just called out of, you were called into. The Apostle Paul would say you were called into His grace, you were called by His mercy, you were called into His marvelous light, as St. Peter says. You were called into fellowship with God's Son, as both St. Paul and St. John assert in their writings. The children of Israel, as I said, were called out of Egypt, and then they were called into the promised land. But oftentimes, just like the children of Israel, if we're honest, we too fail to enter into the fullness of the grace that Jesus has for us. Years ago, I knew a couple, I'm going to call them Matt and Mary to protect the guilty, they were saved out of a cult, or at least out of a group that was cult-like and certainly heretical in their theology. But they met Jesus, the living, real Jesus. They met Him, and He changed their life in many ways. And they were used of God to minister to God's people in many ways. But at times, in their dealings with their own children, they behaved in ways that had remnants of their life in the cult. And there was a mutual friend that we had at the time, and she was talking about a particular situation and season they were going through where they were demonstrating this behavior, and it was frustrating to her. And finally, one time, I looked at her, and I said to her, it was easier to get Israel out of Egypt than it was to get Egypt out of Israel. When we come out of Egypt, we have to leave Egypt behind. And we come into the light with our brokenness. We come into the light with our wreckness. We come into the light with our unhealed places, but we bring those to the light and we let Jesus speak into those His healing word for our souls. And if you find yourself in a place that you just can't get over the hump, then let me give you two suggestions. One is go to that room during communion, and let people pray for you. And the other is, we have lots of them in this church for an interesting reason that I don't know the answer to, but I think I know. It's because we're a place of God's healing and grace. Find you a counselor that will help you walk this stuff out in your life. God wants to bring the healing and the freedom that he's called you into to your life. We were called out of the darkness, but we were also called in to his marvelous light. So we have to embrace this calling into. We have to embrace this calling to be the kingdom that God has called us to be, or at least to live in the kingdom that he's called into. And that means that you and I have to recognize that our citizenship is from another realm. It is to recognize that his kingdom, as Jesus said to Pilate, is not of this world. He says, otherwise, if it were, my people would fight. And there are times the church in her fighting acts like her kingdom is of this world. And she's not operating in the spirit of the kingdom of Jesus. 
We must embrace this reality that we're called into the kingdom. To embrace that the kingdom is our home, that we are citizens of his kingdom, children of his kingdom, residents of his kingdom. And the challenge in seeking to do this is to live into that reality. And it is as the word of God came to the prophet Jeremiah to learn to extract the precious from the vile. It is learn to, en- to engage and to respond to life from that of the perspective of the king and of the kingdom. It is to recognize that we are not first citizens of this world, and thus we are not first citizens of this nation. We are first citizens of his kingdom. And it is easy to confuse the two. It is easy to live from assumptions that are rooted in our cultural values and norms and to confuse those for the cultural values and norms of the kingdom. And we must learn to extricate ourselves from our cultural trappings. Now, there are many challenges that face our culture, but that face the church in America as well. One of those I think Dustin touches on in his work on the church and the changing culture, and that is the issue of the power of consumerism within our culture. We are now in a consumerist culture. And we must extract ourselves from it as best as we can. As the actor Benjamin Bratt has rightly observed, we live in a society that, for the most part, is morally and spiritually bankrupt. Our culture is a culture of consumerism. We always have to have more. We always have to have the next thing. That we always are in tune with the latest. And that is why we are constantly seeking. But we must ask ourselves, why do I always want the next thing? We were made to participate in this world, but we were not meant to possess it as our own. Often our possessions end up possessing us, if we're honest. We must ask ourselves, what am I seeking? Am I seeking his values and am I seeking his interests? Another issue that plagues the church within our culture as well and that the church unfortunately has participated in is the issue of racism. The sociologist and Baptist preacher Tony Campola once told the story of walking into a Sunday school classroom. Now you have to understand the church that he attended had been an all-white church, but due to white flight, it had become an African-American church. But his family stayed, as he said, because my grandfather bought the offering plates. So he was teaching a Sunday school class, and he walked into the Sunday school class that morning, and on the chalkboard was drawn a picture of Jesus with an afro. And when Campolo saw that picture on the chalkboard, he said, Jesus wasn't black. And the young man that drew it retorted, and he wasn't white either. It's easy for us to see Jesus in our image rather than us seeing Jesus for who he is and us in his image. We fail to see him and hear him for who and what he is. We must learn to extract the precious from the vile. We must learn to extract ourselves from social mores, to step back and ask the hard questions. I'm not talking about some false notion of white liberal guilt here. I'm talking about openly acknowledging the many ways, both subtle and not so subtle, that racism is still rampant within this country and that the church has an obligation to address it in healthy ways that create dialogue, ownership, confession, and calls for justice. In World War II, during World War II and the Nazi regime and the atrocities that were done against the Jewish people. During the Nazi Holocaust, in one country, 
no Jews died. And it was because of the effort and the voice of one man that ultimately led to that. The Jews had, back, had, in fact, been rounded up. They had been put in the boxcars of the train, getting ready to be shipped off to the gas chambers. And one Orthodox priest, whom they call Metropolitan Carol, learned that it was happening. And he made his way down and pushed his way and pushed the guns down that the soldiers were holding and marched past them up to the railroad cars. He pulled one of the doors open to that railroad car, and with one verse of Scripture, with a portion of one verse of Scripture, he changed the course of the Jews in Bulgaria. And that verse was this. He cried out, Whither thou lodgest, I will lodge. Whither thou goest, I will go. Your people shall be my people, and your God will be my God. And when the people heard that, their hearts were turned and politicians raised their voice against the government and said, we will not put the Jews to death. And by the end of World War II, there were more Jews living in Bulgaria than there were at the start of World War II because one member of the church raised his voice. The church in Germany failed to raise her voice and countless numbers of Jews died. We must learn to raise our voices. Folks, you cannot read the Gospels and not see that Jesus hung primarily out with people who were the marginalized and the outcasts, the rejects of the social acceptable in the society. A number, a few years ago, I knew a young guy who was, oh, he wasn't that young, but a guy who was a chaplain, who was younger than me, so he seemed young, um, because I'm old now, and um, he was a chaplain in the military. And um, the first time I met him, he spouted off something about his family, and then after that I would friend friended him on Facebook, and on Facebook he kept posting, you know, one thing after another about his family, all these people and all these things they had done from way back in history and all these great things. I good night, where'd he come from? You know, I just come from plain, common ordinary folk. And I thought, where'd this dude come from? What, who are these people? And suddenly it hit me that I come from the kind of people Jesus hung out with. Right? The grace of Jesus comes to us right where we are. We must hear Jesus say that where I am, there will my servant be also. We must be where Jesus is among the people. There's another thing we tend toward sometimes in American Christianity, especially those of us on the more orthodox side of that leaning, and that is the escapism that oftentimes our faith brings to us. We seek to avoid the world in which we live. We call to engage the world. Jesus says, occupy till he comes. Jesus says that he, we, he acknowledged himself that he must be about the Father's business. We must seek to discern, Father, what is your business and what would you have us do? But oftentimes our songs and our music, and our, and, our, and, our, and our preaching so oftentimes allows us to escape the reality. We must learn to engage where we are. To answer his calling then also is to clothe ourselves with that humility that Jesus was clothed with, that the prophet himself calls us to when he says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? To walk humbly with your God. Whatever you know, 
whatever you think you know, whatever your theological position might be, remember this, as Paul said, you only know in part. We must always walk with a spirit of humility and a spirit of love as we walk with one another, as we walk our lives out in this world in which we live. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples because you wore the right clothing, because you wore your hair the right way, because you said the right lingo. That's Jesus' hat, right? No. Jesus said, you, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples when you have love one for another. The early church father, Tertullian, reports that those who observed the early Christians, those outside the church who observed the early Christians would say, behold how they love one another. And they may not have understood everything that was going on when the church gathered together, but they at least knew this. They knew that they loved one another. They knew that they cared for the poor. They knew that they took care of the marginalized. They knew that, that, that the Christians would go and the spots where the Romans would leave and abandon their babies, the Christians would go and get them and bring them and raise them as their own. They knew those things. When we walk with a spirit of humility, people will listen. To what we have to say. And then to embrace his calling is to recognize that he is with us through it all. If you read later in the book of Exodus, in Exodus 19, there comes a point, or excuse me, it's later than that, it's later in Exodus. There comes this point in the book of Exodus where the children of Israel are about to be led further forward through the wilderness toward the promised land. And God is a little upset with the people at this point, and He's threatening to leave them. And Moses cries out, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how will it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. Do you hear Moses' heart? It wasn't that they had a tabernacle. It wasn't that they had kosher laws regarding meals. Moses says it's not by the sandals that they wear or the clothes on their back or the way they cut their hair. Moses said what will distinguish us and make us distinct, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth, is because of your presence with us. Now, I recognize that our God is transcendent. He is other than us. He's above us. He's over us. But he's also imminent. He's also here with us. Now, I think weird things. I have no idea why I think weird things, and I think about weird stuff, but I just do. I just think about weird stuff. I'm just driving down the road, and weird thoughts will come to my brain. <laughs> have you ever thought about that Genesis passage where it said God created the heavens and the earth? you ever thought, where, where, where did he do that? Where? Like, in relationship to himself. Did God, like, like, pull up his robes and create a void and speak into there? Actually, a time when some people believe that. Spoke into a void. Did he remove his presence and speak into it? No. God created all of this right within the midst of his very presence. God is present to us. He's closer than we think. 
Paul says, for it is in him we live and move and have our being. This whole creation that we live in and share in are a part of it. It is permeated with the presence and the energies of God. God is not just way off there, out there somewhere. He is outside and above the universe, but at the same time, he is present in and with his creation. As the physicist, theoretical physicist, Ard Louie noted, if somehow God should cease to exist, the universe would not slowly grind to a halt. It would cease to exist at the exact same moment. We oftentimes use the metaphor as God is an artist. But Salvador Dali is dead and his works of art still exist. Other artists have died, Monet and others have died, and their work of art still exists. If God would cease to exist, his work of art would cease to exist with him. He holds this all together, Paul says, by the word of his power. His presence is with us. There's nowhere you can go, David said in the Psalms, where you can escape from him. But in order for us to understand this, we have to begin to understand He is with us. He is our God. He is our God. And we must have faith to believe what the psalmist says about this God of ours. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. His Hesed love, that's Robert's favorite word from the Old Testament. His merciful love. We don't hardly can't even capture it in our language. This love of God for us, this love that's beyond your imagination, this love that's deeper and wider and higher pulses than anything you or I know. This love and his faithfulness to all generations. And even when we falter in our faith, he remains faithful to his people. Now, some of you perhaps are fans of Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. You remember there was a character in there, I believe they called him Strider at the beginning of the books. And there comes a moment in his life where he encounters the king of the elves. They're in a tent in the movie. And the Lord of the elves looks at him and says, be who you were born to be. This man was in reality a king, but he was not living as he was born to be. Folks, you and I are the church, and we must be who we were born to be. We must be the people that God has called us to be. May we, by his grace, become what he says we are. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.